Section 18 of Mornings at Bow Street by John White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Haggling Customer A linen draper was brought before the magistrate, charged with having assaulted the Israelitish damsel, one Miss Rebecca Myers. The fair Rebecca, fair for one of her nation, though evidently not much addicted to the use of soap, stated with many tears and a faltering voice that she went into the defendant's shop to purchase some trifling articles, and because she objected to the price of some of them, he knocked her down with a roll of calico. When she said knocked her down, she meant he gave her such a blow as would have knocked her down if she had not stood firm. And not content with this, he jumped over the counter, and putting his great paws on her shoulders, he shook her till her head seemed ready to drop off at the top joint, and her brains were addled for an hour after. The magistrate expressed his surprise that a linen draper should treat a lady so boisterously, and asked him what he had to say for himself. The linen draper, who, by the by, had nothing at all linen draperish in his appearance, but on the contrary had an aspect remarkably stern and solemn replied by stating many little vexations which he had suffered from miss rebecca such for instance as ordering him to cut off a quantity of calico and then refusing to have it haggling customers of her sort were more trouble than a little and enough to ruffle any man's temper but as to what she had said about the knocking her down and all that it was a mere tissue of falsehoods. The very head in front of his offending was frisking the calico at her, and threatening to send for a constable when she became abusive. For abusive she was, said he, very abusive, though she looks so demure now. The magistrate said he did not understand the word frisking as applied in this case, and ordered the ungallant linen draper to find bail for his appearance at the sessions. STEALING EX OFFICIO A sturdy, squalid little fellow, calling himself Timothy Blunt, was brought before the magistrate under the following circumstances. The landlord of a public house in the neighborhood of Temple Bar deposed that the prisoner Timothy Blunt came into his house that morning, as he was busy serving his customers and staring in his face for about a minute, addressed him with a I say, mister, I warily believes, as that air's a counterband bandany, as you've got round your neck, and as I'm a neckciseman, I shall seize it. And he instantly did so, to the utter dismay of mine host. Show me your authority, cried the almost strangled landlord. But he cried in vain. Timothy Blunt scorned to parley, and tearing off the bandana, he was walking away with it in triumph. When mine host besought himself that it was a rummish sort of a go, and, by the assistance of his customers, gave Timothy Blunt in charge to a constable. Timothy Blunt, in his defense, assured their worships that he was a real bonny fide excise officer, and that things were gotten to such a pitch throughout the nation in the smuggling of bandanies that he and his brother officers had strict orders to seize them wheresoever 
they lighted upon them whether in pocket or on neck let me see your authority said the magistrate i knows of no law to oblige me to show it said the sententious timothy i seizes the bandanis for the king and his revenue and if i'm wrong why let the king look to it besides that air authority cost me a matter of five pounds nineteen shillings and i should be a fool to put it in jeopardy by showing it to every man what asks for it the magistrate immediately committed him to take his trial for stealing the bandana but nevertheless he marched off to jail upon excellent terms with himself a distressed father henry newberry a lad only thirteen years old and edward chidley aged seventeen were full committed for trial charged with stealing a silver teapot from the house of a gentleman in grosvenor place there was nothing extraordinary in the circumstances of the robbery young newberry was observed to go down into the area of the house whilst his companion kept watch and they were caught endeavouring to conceal the teapot under some rubbish in the five fields chelsea but the case was made peculiarly interesting by the unsophisticated distress of newberry's father the poor old man who seems had been a soldier and was at this time a journeyman pavior refused at first to believe that his son had committed the crime imputed to him and was very clamorous against the witnesses but as their evidence proceeded he himself appeared to become gradually convinced he listened with intense anxiety to the various details and when they were finished he fixed his eyes in silence for a second or two upon his son and turning to the magistrate with his eyes swimming in tears he exclaimed i have carried him many a score miles on my knapsack your honor there was something so deeply pathetic in the tone with which his fond reminiscence was uttered by the old soldier that every person present even the very jailer himself was affected by it i have carried him many score miles on my knapsack your honor repeated the poor fellow whilst he brushed away the tears from his cheek with his rough unwashed hand but it's all over now he has done and so have i the magistrate asked him something of his story he said he had formerly driven a stagecoach in the north of ireland and had a small share in the proprietorship of the coach in this time of his prosperity he married a young woman with a little property but he failed in business and after enduring many troubles he enlisted as a private soldier in the eighteenth or royal irish regime of foot and went on foreign service taking with him his wife and four children henry the prisoner being his second son and his darling pride at the end of his nine years he was discharged in this country without a pension or a friend in the world and coming to london he with some trouble got employed as a pavure by the gentleman who managed the streets at mary le bon two years ago your honour he continued my poor wife was wearied out with the world and she deceased from me and i was left alone with the children and every night after i had done work i washed their faces and put them to bed and washed their little bits of things and hang them o'er the line to dry myself for i'd no money your honour and so i could not have a housekeeper to do for them you know 
But, Your Honor, I was as happy as I well could be, considering my wife has deceased from me, till some bad people came to live at the back of us, and they were always striving to get Henry amongst them, and I was terribly afraid something bad would come of it, as it was poorly I could do for him, and so I'd made up my mind to take all my children to Ireland. If he had only held up another week, Your Honor, we should have gone, and he would have been saved. But now... Here the poor man looked at his boy again, and wept, and when the magistrate endeavored to console him by observing that his son would sail for Botany Bay, and probably do well there, he replied somewhat impatiently, Aye, it's fine talking, your worship. I pray to the great God he may never sail anywhere, unless he sails with me to Ireland. And then, after a moment's thought, he asked, in the humblest tone imaginable, doesn't your honor think a little bit of a petition might help him? The magistrate replied, It possibly might, and added, If you attend his trial at the Old Bailey, and plead for him as eloquently in word and action as you have done here, I think it would help him still more. Aye, but then you won't be there, I suppose, will you? Asked the poor fellow, with that familiarity which is in some degree sanctioned by extreme distress. And when his worship replied that he certainly should not be present, he immediately rejoined, Then, what's the use of it? There will be nobody there who knows me, and what strangers will listen to a poor old broken-hearted fellow who can't speak for crying? The prisoners were now removed from the bar, to be conducted to prison, and his son, who had wept incessantly all the time, cried wildly to him, Father! Father! As if he expected that his father would snatch him out of the iron grasp of the law. But the old man remained riveted, as it were, to the spot on which he stood with his eyes fixed on the lad until the door had closed upon him, and then putting on his hat, unconscious where he was, and crushing it down over his brows, he began wandering round the room in a state of stupor. The officers, in waiting, reminded him, that he should not wear his hat in the presence of the magistrate, and he instantly removed it. But he still seemed lost to everything around him, and, though one or two gentlemen present put money into his bands, he heeded it not, but slowly sauntered out of the office, apparently reckless of everything. Sorrows of the Sullivans Mr. Daniel Sullivan, of Totterham Court Road, greengrocer, fruiterer, coal and potato merchant, salt fish and Irish pork monger, was brought before the magistrate on a peace warrant issued at the suit of his wife, Mrs. Mary Sullivan. Mrs. Sullivan is an Englishwoman who, according to her own account, married Mr. Sullivan for love, and has been blessed with many children by him. But nevertheless, he appeared before the magistrate with her face all scratched and bruised, from the eyes downward to the very tip of her chin. All which scratches and bruises, she said, were the handiwork of her husband. The unfortunate Mary, it appeared, married Mr. Sullivan about ten years ago, at which time he was a polite a young Irishman as ever handled a potato on a side channel. He had everything snug and comfortable about him, and his purse and his person, taken together, were quite undeniable. She, herself, was a young woman, gently brought up, 
abounding in friends and acquaintance and silk gowns with three good bonnets always in use and black velvet shoes to correspond welcome wherever she went whether to dinner tea or supper and made much by everybody st gillis's bells rang merrily at their wedding a fine fat leg of mutton at capers plenty of pickled salmon three ample dishes of salt fish and potatoes with pies pudding and porter of the best were set forth for the bridal supper all the most considerable families in diet street and church lane were invited and everything promised a world of happiness and for five whole years they were happy she loved as lord byron would say she loved and was beloved she adored and she was worshipped but mr sullivan was too much like the hero of his lordship's tale his affections could not hold the bent and the sixth year had scarcely commenced when poor mary discovered that she had outlived his liking from that time to the present he had treated her continually with the greatest cruelty and at last when by his means he had reduced her from a comely young person to a mere handful of a poor creature he beat her and turned her out of doors this was mrs sullivan's story and she told it with such pathos that all who heard it pitied her except her husband it was now mr sullivan's turn to speak whilst his wife was speaking he had stood with his back towards her his arms folded across his breast to keep down his collar biting his lips and staring at the blank wall but the moment she ceased he abruptly turned round and curiously enough asked the magistrate whether mistress sullivan had done spaking she has replied his worship but suppose you ask her whether she has anything more to say i shall sir exclaimed the angry mr sullivan mistress sullivan had you any more of it to say mrs sullivan raised her eyes to the ceiling clasped her hands together and was silent very well then continued he will i get to lave to speak your honour his honour nodded permission and mr sullivan immediately began a defence to which it is impossible to do justice so exuberantly did he suit the action to the word and the word to the action oh your honour there is something the matter with me he began at the same time putting two of his fingers perpendicularly over his forehead to intimate that mrs sullivan had played him false he then went into a long story about a mr burke who lodged in his house and had taken the liberty of assisting him in his conjugal duties without any lay from him at all it was one night in particular he said that he himself went to bed betimes in the little back parlor quite entirely sick with the headache mr burke was out from home and when the shop was shut up mrs sullivan went out too but he didn't care for that only he thought she might as well have stayed at home and so he couldn't go to sleep for thinking of it well at one o'clock in the morning he continued lowering his voice into a sort of loud whisper at one o'clock in the morning mr burke lets himself in with the key that he had and goes up to bed and i thought nothing at all but presently i hears something come tap 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 at the street door the minute after down comes mr burke 
and opens the door. And sure it was Mary, Mistress Sullivan, that is, more the pity, and devil a bit she came to see after me in the little back parlor at all. But upstairs she goes after Mr. Burke. Oh, says I, but there's something the matter with me this night. And I got up with the nightcap o' the head of me, and went into the shop to see for a knife. But I couldn't get one by no means, so I creeps upstairs, step by step, step by step. Here Mr. Sullivan walked on tiptoe all across the office, to show the magistrate how quietly he went up the stairs. And when I gets to the top, I sees him, by the gash, gas, coming through the chink in the windy curtains. I sees him, and oh, Mr. Sullivan, says he, and oh, Mr. Burke, says she, and oh, botheration, says I to myself, and what will I do now? We cannot follow Mr. Sullivan any further in the detail of his melancholy affair. It is sufficient that he saw enough to convince him that he was dishonored, that by some accident or another he disturbed the guilty pair, whereupon Mrs. Sullivan crept under Mr. Burke's bed to hide herself, that Mr. Sullivan rushed into the room and dragged her from under this bed by her wicked leg, and that he felt about the round table in the corner where Mr. Burke kept his bread and cheese in the hope of finding a knife. And what would you have done with it if you had found it? asked his worship. Is it what I would have done with it, your honor asks? exclaimed Mr. Sullivan, almost choked with rage. Is it what I would have done with it, only that I'd have dagged it into the heart of him at that same time? As he said this, he threw himself into an attitude of wild desperation, and made a tremendous lunge, as if in the very act of slaughter. To make a short of a long story, he did not find the knife. Mr. Burke barricaded himself in his room, and Mr. Sullivan turned his wife out of the doors. The magistrate ordered him to find bail, to keep the peace towards his wife and all the king's subjects, and told them if his wife was indeed what he had represented her to be. He must seek some less violent mode of separation than the knife. End of section 18